Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest vox casting either side of the breach. Malifaux is a mysterious world, and much of its history is unknown. Its badlands and swamps are full of archaeological wonders that have yet to be discovered. Or at least, have yet to be discovered by humans. I hope you enjoy part one of The Slaughter at Stonehill. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Old Stony Moonshine Distillery. Old Stony is a piquant brew with earthy undertones, hints of jasmine, water hyacinth, and occasional paralysis. Heavier than a pig in mud, but ain't nothing finer than a cup of Old Stony. The Slaughter at Stone Hill by Graham Stevenson Ulix was having a perfectly fine day. The sun had just begun to lazily creep over the hillside as he finished preparing the day's pig slop, a recipe passed down from one turn to the next. Ulix spent a considerable amount of time perfecting the portions and percentages, just the right amount of wheat here and beans there. Scratched into one of the wooden beams of the shed reflected the changes made from generation to generation. Only his secret ingredient remained unwritten. A small piglet followed at his heel, oinking excitedly. He checked his pocket watch. Someone's up early, he said, putting away the watch and patting her on the head. Go on now, get your place in line or there won't be none left. She scuttled to the outer edge of a small trough barely able to contain herself. Ulix had to hurry. The ever-cherished sound of squeals and the earth squelching was his signal that the farm was waking up. He finished carefully filling up every last trough, got a safe distance from the shed, and let out a whistle. Like a storm or swine, the entirety of his pig farm charged toward their breakfast. The sound of slurping and slopping was expectedly overwhelming. Even Penelope, his closest companion and his farm's guard dog was enjoying her meal. What wasn't expected, however, was the sound coming from a distance. Company. It wasn't summer. Could usually smell the gun smoke long before you heard him coming. It wasn't McTavish. He usually showed up in the middle of the night, drunk off his ass to pass out with the pigs. It wasn't Martin either. She rarely even showed up anymore. Now she found her way to weasel in with a few foundry folk. Nope. It had to be none other than Bert Jebson. Great. Penelope's ears finally perked up when she heard the pots and pans smash together in the distance. Eulis responded to his visitor, 
by slowly walking into his hut and locking the door behind him. It wasn't long until Bert was at his door. You in there, old man? No, I ain't, Lulix replied. Now get lost. Well, shucks. Bert sounded outright perplexed, then started talking to Gracie. He ain't here. I know, I know. I'm as surprised as you. It's all right, girl. We'll find us something nice like. Ulix stood by the door, listening in. He cursed, spat on the ground, then opened the door a crack. What you here for, boy? You is here. Well, ain't that a... And you're about to be lunch lest you tell me why you're on my stoop, you good for nothing. At least some things around here ain't changing, Bert said assuredly. Here's Gracie. You've been picky about what you've been eating lately, and... Gracie, why didn't you say so in the first place? You swung the door open. He immediately saw Gracie's face. She looked ill. Damn, boy, what you feeding her? I... Shut up and get inside already. Everything about this place was disjointed. Arkwright sucked his prominent front teeth as he reviewed the scene. Directly ahead, the land rose steeply to form a ramp of earth, a ridge perhaps a hundred feet high. This ridge ran for about twice its distance on either side before it fell back into the lazy undulation of the bio skyline. The peak of this ridge had at one point been a sharp apex, but wind and time had eroded this to a vague hump. The ridge itself would probably have vanished back into the surrounding swamp were it not for the stonework on the south face. Blocks of limestone, each one the size of a goods wagon, had been stacked to form a structure that seemingly disappeared into the earth ridge. The blocks were fitted together very snugly without mortar. Only gravity and ingenuity held the construction together. And everything about it, from the simple design to the prolific symbols carved into the stones, cried out ancient Amazonia. Which is exactly why it was such a curiosity. Records have shown various breaches opening on Earth, such as Abyssinia, just outside of Tenochtitlan, and of course Santa Fe. But not even a single book in the Explorer Society Library ever mentioned a connection to an Amazonian civilization. Despite it being one of the most extensive among collections this side of the breach, any information on old Malifaux was scarce at best, let alone any information in regards to a lost Earthside people. Many of their temples and histories have been lost to the annals of time. Clay tablets crumbling to dust, homes and gravesites overgrown and torn apart by complex root structures, and vandalism have made it nearly impossible to understand their culture. If there was a connection to Malifaux, it wouldn't be entirely surprising. But it would raise more questions than answer those that had previously existed. Arkwright had an inquisitive mind, and spent a significant time of his academic career studying various geoglyphs found by other explorers within the forest. Taking into account his dedication to extensive research and studies, the Explorer Society offered him the prestigious opportunity to direct this new expedition. Except that Arkwright knew if he was to discover something worthwhile from this forgotten place, he would finally find himself within the esteemed circle of the society, a much-coveted status. In a brief meeting with Mr. Nagatoro, an intimidating man with a face tattoo and the finest suit he'd ever seen, additional information was provided. 
such as recreations of ancient glyphs that suggested a great tear in the sky above a kingdom surrounded in a sweltering green, and figures as tall as the tallest trees pouring out from the tear. Other documents suggested that tribesmen had entered through the breach, even going as far as mentioning how the stone's blocks were dragged through. Admittedly, discovering anything substantial was long odds, but to Arkwright, he would be willing to risk it all in order to further advance his career. A senior luminary within the Explorer Society, a dreamlike position. He had banked everything he owned and called in as many favors as he could on the slim chance that the society was correct, that an Amazonian civilization had made contact with Malifaux, and had built something that had remained untouched for millennia. A fool's hope or a golden opportunity? Regardless, there he was, in the heart of the bayou, and there it was, standing before him. A temple built into the side of an artificial hill in the middle of a swamp was an uncommon enough sight, but the shanty town that had grown against it like a shabby timber beard looked downright bizarre. The explorer had seen enough of what the gremlins called architecture on his journey south to recognize which culture was responsible for these buildings although they failed to obey any form of order or regulation that he could detect. Shacks sat around on the top one another in apparent disregard for their neighbor's privacy or even right of access. Animal pens of all shapes and sizes adjoined and in some cases bisected or completely surrounded most of these shacks. But why they had all been constructed was a mystery, as virtually all of the animals, mostly pigs and chickens, wandering free around the environs of the village in blithe ignorance. Many small green figures moved among them. Arkwright could see them jarring to one another, jarring over the piles of unchopped firewood, jarring at the bucket well in the center of the tiny village, jarring over cans of whitewash and motionless hog hair brushes, jarring while leaning against shack walls. In fact, the only aspects of the village that suggested any industry with the sporadic and dangerous-looking constructs of boilers and copper piping. Arkwright could see several. He was too far away to hear the bubbling percolation, but the strong smells of mashing alcohol left no doubt about what the gremlins were doing with this apparatus. Smells good, said Barber at his ear. The boys haven't had a drink since they left Ridley. I'm not paying them a drink, Arkwright responded. Oh, there's no need to pay them, Barber said. They'll be happy to do it for free. Urquhart disliked the mercenary leader. He disliked the man's cavalier attitude. His rubbery loose-limbed gait. His lack of personal hygiene. But most of all, he disliked that ever-present crooked leer. Barber had suffered some kind of facial trauma in his youth. Something that had badly scarred the lower right-hand side of his face. Smashed his jaw and knocked out all the teeth on that side. Now he had a permanent smirk, and Arkwright couldn't shake the conviction that it was at his expense. There will be no consumption of alcohol on this expedition, he said firmly. I'll see to it that any man caught imbibing intoxicants will forfeit the remainder of his expedition pay. Barber spat casually into the dirt. His expression was one of careful neutrality, but Arkwright chose to interpret the action as a silent protest. You're the boss, Barber said. Behind them lounged a dozen men, all of them weighted down with heavy packs, coils of rope, 
cauldrons, water bottles, clockwork rifles, machetes, and all the other trappings of an expedition charted to force its way through miles upon treacherous miles of boiling swampland that was under siege from humidity that was as thick as a blanket. They had started with sixteen men plus Urquhart and Barber. Nugatoro, his fixer and only connection to the Explorer Society, had deemed that more than enough men to lug the essential equipment, potable water, and rations needed for two months in the southern bayou. He'd lost two men to Silurids, and a third to a water moccasin that seemed as long as the river itself. Their lives were taken alongside the crew's boats, which meant a much more arduous journey for the lot. A fourth man was lost to an unknown infection that caused the man's flesh to balloon and turn translucent. He had moaned for three days, then screamed for three more, until Barber put a bullet in his skull. No one complained. It meant the man didn't need to take turns carrying his litter. And although sickened by the brutality, Arkwright had his first night's unbroken sleep in almost a week. The man grumbled incessantly. They complained about the clouds of biting insects that dogged them, about the leeches that had to be burned off their shins, and sometimes thighs, after each long day's slog through the brackish water. They were unhappy with the weight of the packs, although Arkwright had known laborers to hump twice as much across the Andes or trek through the islands of the Gulf of Aegina without a word of discontent. They disliked the rations, the lack of alcohol. Arkwright believed in keeping a dry company and had not requisitioned any intoxicants, other than a small chest of spirits for medicinal use, to which he held the only key. They even muttered amongst themselves about the pay. Mutters a sufficient volume to reach the expedition leader, of course. In short, Arkwright had never known a more discontented expedition crew. It was true that the conditions were tough, but no more so than any other adventure he'd been on. Arkwright understood that the caliber of the men Nugatoro had chosen was simply far below anything he was used to, no doubt for reasons of financial prudence. Also, to his experienced eye, the men on this expedition seemed exclusively a variety of soldiery, rather than the more usual majority of laborers, salted with a few experienced gunmen. These men were accustomed to a certain degree of hardship, but not the constant back-breaking punishment of the expedition trail. Guns for hire, not backs. However, like the captain who finds the timbers of his vessel weak and rotten after he's already put to sea, he had very little choice but to carry on. Especially when both his reputation and career were on the line. To some, the very idea that a lost Amazonian civilization had visited the stretches of the southern bayou and Malifaux, let alone constructed a temple to their gods, was implausible at best and downright outlandish at worst. Mr. Negatoro's stern expression and the potentiality of his career skyrocketing were enough motivation for Arkwright. Curiously, there was no sense of burning triumph now that he looked upon his theory writ stone. In fact, he only felt a vague anxiety that there would be nothing portable to be found in the temple that he could use to populate the presentation he was already beginning to formulate in his head. Photographic plates were all very well, but a few items of pottery or even a tablet would be a wonderful addition and really cement the legitimacy of his discovery in the minds of his colleagues, past and future alike. He snapped open his pocket watch, glanced at it. 
We still have almost half a day's life, he said. More than enough time to begin a cursory examination of the temple. Let's get to work. Stone Hill was a village that had fared better than most. One family of gremlins existed more or less in harmony with the bayou and its various denizens, having long ago taken advantage of the high artificial bluff that formed the base of the manor. The elevation of just a dozen feet was enough to keep them well clear of the swamp water. That alone gave them blessed relief from fevers, biting insects, and opportunistic predators, but there was the added benefit of less chance of flooding during the rainy season. Plus, shacks didn't collapse anywhere near as often as usual, thanks to the firm-packed earth. There was also the manor itself, which gave the residents of the village certain bragging rights. There wasn't every settlement in the bayou that had a gigantic stone temple in it. Most other bosses had to make do with a weird wood shack. Lofty Buke's digs were better than some folks who lived in the city itself, and that was saying something. Or, at the very least, that's what he told everyone the first time they'd visit. Lofty Buke used to be better known as Lemon Buke, mostly for the fact he had no teeth and his mouth had collapsed in like he'd been sucking on the aforementioned fruit. But Lofty had gradually come into more common currency about the time he started hiring some of the little ones as props. Being a prop was considered a solemn task in the village, and mostly involved following Lofty around with a long stick to make sure his absurdly tall hat didn't tilt too far in one direction and topple to the ground. Other than this, it was a village much like any other, poor in coin, but rich in gossip. The locals also had a recipe for moonshine that enjoyed a modest reputation in the area, Old Stony. It was a piquant brew with earthly undertones, hints of jasmine, water hyacinth, and occasional paralysis. On this particular afternoon, Lofty had ambled over to Clement Still for a refill. His jug was nearly empty and these hot summer days gave him a powerful thirst. Clement, he said by way of greeting, watching a thin, clear stream of potent alcohol vanish into the depths of the stone jug. Lofty, Clement responded, with a faint yet deferential nod, also mesmerized by the glistening thread of shine. Like his pappy before him, and his pappy's pappy, Lofty enjoyed exclusive use of the smooth stone plates, cups, jugs, and other accoutrements of the temple as befit his station. Of course, the gremlin interpretation of exclusive was pretty much anyone so long as old Lemonface didn't see it. Hot in it, Lofty commented, as the liquid level slowly climbed. Hot, oh, yeah, Clement agreed. Not quite at the halfway point. Of course, tastes better out of stone, Lofty said absently. Keeps it cool. Is that so? commented Clement politely who had two stone jugs of his own hidden under his bed and was inclined to agree. You bet. Heavier than a pig in the mud, but ain't nothing finer than a cold cup of stony, I tell you what. Yep. About two-thirds full now. Herb says it's gonna rain tonight, Clement commented at length. Get out, Lofty said. Ain't a cloud in the sky and the air's dried in straw. But if Herb said it, then Herb said it. Clement twisted the spigot, cutting off the flow about a thumb's breadth from the top of the jug. That'll do her. Lofty nodded his thanks and reached for the jug, but Clement's attention was on something over his shoulder. Well, paint me pink, the shiner swore. Look ye there. There was a line of men walking out of the swamp, each as disgruntled as the next.
Berber could see that he and his men were getting plenty of attention as they fanned out into the village, but it didn't look much like the welcome kind. He'd done more than his share of traveling over the years and had seen some strange things, but he'd never actually laid eyes on a gremlin before. He'd heard of them, of course, but they were a secretive and distrustful people and kept very much to themselves. Curious looking, too, with their bandy little legs, lumpy features, and disproportionate ears. Most of the villages, devices, and clothing Barbara saw in the village were roughly simulacrums of humanity, but it was clear that beneath the surface these creatures were anything but. Barbara had been in these swamps for a month, and they were some of the toughest terrain he'd had the misfortune to traverse. It would take an especially hardy breed to carve out a life here, let alone form a society. Yet somehow, these wiry, half-sized nuisances that managed that and more, they flourished. Barbara nudged a fat piglet out of the way as he led his men into the village proper. He hadn't eaten anything but hardtack and salt pills for over a week, and his mouth watered at the thought of hot pork crackling fresh from a cook fire. The eyes of his men roamed over the glut of animals that clucked and grunted around them and knew they were thinking the same thing. The gremlins were beginning to drift out of their shacks. They kept their distance, but Barbara noticed every one of them was holding some type of weapon, sophisticated and handcrafted alike, and the uniformly hostile stares strengthened his first impression that though these little savages wore short pants and ape humans, they were anything but. More like wolves in villagers' clothing. It's hard to tell if Arkwright noticed the threat, but then again, his kind rarely did. Brought up in privilege and surrounded by academia, he was more or less blind to the concept that he might actually be in danger on one of his expeditions, and the current situation proved no different. After all, the hired help did the dying so he could survive to relish in the prestige of the society. The skinny explorer had already marched right past the congregating gremlins in his canvas knickerbockers and pith helmet and was standing hands on hips, staring up at the stone monolith at the back of the village. Wonderful, he was saying. Wonderful. Bring up the box camera and the tripod. I want to take plates of these carvings here. And after a few were taken, Arkwright gestured to two of the hired hands. Michael, Staub, accompany me inside. Bring everything you can carry. The boss didn't seem to notice as they clumsily dragged the equipment into the stone structure. Barbara's nostrils caught a sharp and familiar scent. Alcohol. There were three stills in plain view, all of them rickety-looking affairs made from tarnished copper piping and a confusing jumble of cauldrons and boilers, and all of them were operational. Finally, laughed one of his men, a big ox called O'Hallan. Time for a drink, boys. He pulled a battered tin cup from his pack, but was stopped in the act of reaching down to open the spigot by a small green figure wielding a knife. Get your hands off, the gremlin snarled, showing sharp yellow teeth. Ain't for the likes of you. O'Hallan laughed in genuine surprise. In truth, it did look a ridiculous spectacle being threatened by a stringy creature half his height and a fifth his weight, and the other mercenaries joined in. Barba, however, could feel the growing tension and stepped forward with his palms raised. Easy now, he said. We're all friends here. Ain't no friends of yours here, mister, growled the same gremlin, his eyes darting back and forward. Y'all ain't welcome here. Berber continued his placating gestures nonetheless. 
No need for that. We're just passing through. Thought you might like to trade a little first is all. No trade, the gremlin spat, unrelentingly vicious. Y'all don't belong here, so better get going before there's trouble. Another gremlin that took a fair share of whoopings from the ugly stick and the top hat made the twigs and fur step forward. His absurd hat wobbled, and a tiny gremlin child scuttled forward to poke it back into place with a long pole. Lofty buke, boss round here, the gremlin stated with some pomp, after a lengthy clearing of his throat. I don't know what business you folks think you have here, but I can tell you straight. This is our place. You don't come into our place without an invite. He sucked his mouth to let his weighty statement sink in, then added slightly more anxiously, which we ain't give y'all. Barber kept an understanding grin on his face, and his hands well away from his holster. But in the corner of his eye, he could see O'Hallan starting to look irritated. The big man had the flowery expression and strawberry nose of a dedicated drinker, and he'd been dry for far too long already. The southern gremlins between him and the moonshine were rapidly losing their novelty, and before long, he would be inclined to do something rash. There was a clatter of timber and raised voices behind him. Barber turned to see several of his men arguing heatedly with a small cluster of gremlins over a barrel that had been dropped and cracked to seam on the hard dirt. There was a confusing scrum of hands trying to press cups and earthenware jugs against the spray and shine, while others stood over it and pointed accusatory fingers. Time to stand aside, little fella, O'Hallan said, his expression now scrunched into an ugly and essentially stupid glower. I got me a thirst. Go ahead and try it, the gremlin spat back. Gonna look pretty funny trying to swallow with your throat slit. The open threat raised tempers and voices on both sides. Several more of the mercenaries stepped in to support O'Hallan and slipped their clockwork rifles off their shoulders. It was about this time that Barber understood what was going to happen next. He'd been around violent and unprincipled men all his life, and had seen how quickly civility and reason could unspool like a badly knitted sweater when one man wanted the property of another badly enough. His men were worn and angry from weeks in the swamp, tired of being perpetually wet, hungry and sober. This little gremlin village was a virtual oasis with its dry ground, a succulent bounty of domesticated livestock, and most importantly, the only alcohol within 50 miles. They probably would have taken more than their share in the end, but would have paid for at least some of it when Barber pressed the issue. The unremitting intractability of the gremlin locals, however, had fanned the flames of conflict, and these men, whom one could not consider to be moral by any stretch, were coming to the conclusion that they were just going to take it all. Barber could tell that this heated argument was going to dissolve into a fight, and judging by the difference in size and armament, that fight would quickly become a slaughter. Barber was uniquely placed in that he alone had the authority to stop the situation descending into chaos. He could order his men to back off to the edge of the swamp, and he was dangerous enough that they would obey, but they would hate him for it. Hate him enough, maybe, for him to meet with an unfortunate accident on their homeward journey, as one drink-free, leech-infested month stretched into two. Besides, Barbara found that he was tired, bone-tired, tired of this expedition, the bad food, the meager pay, 
and Urkrat's chief and bridle superiority. He was tired of this cursed swamp, putting obstacles between him and the things he wanted most. And right now, he found what he wanted most was a drink. Though he did nothing other than watch as O'Hallan shoved the gremlin with a knife to one side, put his cup under the spigot, and twisted it open. The first drops of clear liquid had barely struck the base of his cup when the gremlin sprang back up in a puff of dust and stabbed his knife to the hilt in O'Hallan's eye. Barber unholstered his clockwork pistol in a smooth action and shot the gremlin through the chest at a range of five feet. The interior of the temple was, if anything, more impressive than its exterior. Arkwright ran his fingers along the cool stone engravings, muttering under his breath while two sullen mercenaries followed him with a bulky camera and tripod. The stones at chest height were engraved with symbols of eagles, tree spirits, and spirals. The carvings were in excellent condition, protected from the elements by the impermeability of the temple's outer structure, and he resolved to take wax rubbings of every panel as soon as he'd finished mapping the interior. He moved deeper into the gloom after a brief pause to light a torch. The amber illumination rebounded splendidly off the stone, and there was ample light to see by when he left the last of the afternoon sun behind. It was wonderfully cool down here. He made his way slowly through a small antechamber, past rows of unblemished pillars and into a much larger hall. Archways lined either side, and each recess a statue. With the long-forgotten kings or representations of ancient gods, Arkwright didn't know but in-depth examination would reveal their secrets sooner or later. There was evidence of gremlin habitation. Dirty rags here, a straw sleeping pallet there, but it could all be swept aside for the photographic plates later. He swung the torch from side to side as he advanced, wondering how many of these glorious statues he could persuade the men to wrestle back to the city for display. When the unsteady light caught something else at the far end of the hall, Two deep alcoves cut into the stone on either side of the back wall contained dozens of disintegrating bones, almost certainly the laborers who died during the construction of this temple. Between them, however, was a doorway that had been bricked up with much smaller stones. This was odd, a noticeable departure from the construction around him. There was another chamber beyond this, and it had been sealed. It bore the same exact and Mortalist masonry, but the stones were much smaller, more manageable. There were four skeletons in a heap around the closed doorway. Jumbled bones and rags were all that were left, but a picture was forming in Eichrat's analytical mind. The breach used by these people must have lasted for years, possibly decades, and then it had closed, no doubt as abruptly as it had appeared. Anyone left in the temple would have been cut off from earth, condemned to die in this inhospitable place. He looked down at the bones, faithful priests, perhaps, or acolytes of the temple. They had sealed this doorway with the last of their strength, using blocks small enough to move by hand, sealed it to protect what? The gremlins, miraculously, had never even discovered this blocked doorway. Arkwright shone his torch at the wall, and turned to the waiting mercenaries. Did someone bring the pry bar? Get this open. 
It took some considerable grunting and puffing, but the two men eventually managed to dislodge a stone, then another, and another, and before long the domino effect took over. When the dust had cleared, Arkwright was the first through, eyes gleaming with academic avarice as he stepped into a darkness that had been last lit thousands of years prior. The chamber beyond was small, but ornately carved, obviously a place of worship. More shriveled skeletons here, perhaps a dozen, all strewn around a central dais with a shadow above it. At first, he thought it was a tunnel, a small shaft leading deeper into the structure for air circulation, or perhaps to emit light from the earth's smothered rear of the temple. It soon became obvious that there was something there, but it was drinking the light, swallowing it faster than the torch could illuminate it so that all that could be discerned was a vague romber standing on its long axis. What in the world, Arkwright muttered. He held the torch close, but the object refused to be revealed. It remained a smoky, indistinct shape. How wonderful, he breathed. What would his soon-to-be society peers make of this? A faint peal of thunder echoed into the chamber. Arkwright cocked an ear almost absently. He heard it again. Practical thoughts began to shoulder their way into his daydream of academic revelry. The expedition was very low on water. And Nugatoro had mentioned they would be traveling close to the monsoon season. Rainwater was a commodity too precious to waste, and he doubted that smirking idiot barber possessed the wherewithal to take advantage of it. Grumbling, he turned and headed back to the entrance, while he made some mental calculations. They had enough flat-packed timber with them for four small crates. The strange artifact had to come back with them, even if only so he and his colleagues could figure out what it actually was. He was still debating to himself as he approached the entrance when the thunder rolled again and again, only it sounded less like thunder now and more like gunfire. Also, the coolness of the temple was given way to the uncomfortable humidity of the bayou once again, but there was no hiss of torrential rain to accompany it. The sky outside, peeking through the canopy, was a brilliant cloudless blue, he marked, as he came blinking into the daylight. Blue sky, brown earth, and bodies. Dozens of bodies. Small, green ones. The village looked like a tornado had swept through it. Many of the shanties had been broken open or completely knocked over, as had most of the animal pens. There were dead gremlins draped over fencing, hanging out of windows, laying in doorways. Many more sprawled in the dirt around the stills, and a few lay face down at the outer periphery of the village, apparently cut down in mid-flight. There were dead men amongst them, too. Urkrak could see at least five mercenary corpses, half buried in gremlins like watchs overcome by ants. The men that were left were busy bandaging knife wounds on their legs or kicking over bodies, ready with a named rifle for any that only feigned death. At the far end of the village, Barber stood with that sardonic half-grin on his face and drank slowly from a broken pitcher in the methodical manner of a man intending to get very drunk. What is the meaning of this, Arkwright demanded, striding over motionless green bodies and getting right in the barber's smug face. 
What in the blazes have you done now? Don't lay this on me, Professor, Barbara retorted. You weren't here when it kicked off. Twelve armed men against the village of... The explorer looked around. Farmers and children. Explain yourself. Barbara nodded in the direction of the hulking mound that had once been O'Hallan. One of your farmers killed O'Hallan with a knife through the eye for wanting a drink. The rest was self-defense. Urquhart was not in the least saddened at the loss of O'Hallan. The man had been a loud, boorish sloth, either incapable of or unwilling to carry anywhere near the burden that his size suggested manageable. The loss of manpower, however, any manpower, was unforgivable. So thanks to O'Hallan's alcoholism, we have now lost roughly half our labor force, he assessed. Not to mention slaughtered innocents. How is this going to look in my report? A destroyed career before it's even started. Barbara shrugged. I doubt anyone's going to be outraged about something they don't know happened. There are bodies everywhere. Are you blind, sir? The mercenary leader took a step closer and lowered his voice very slightly. It's going to take a month minimum to get back out of this swamp. More like six weeks now that we're at half strength. I'd say another month before you get a chance to exhibit your findings, and then at least another six months before another charter gets organized to come back out here. Your point being? My point being, in six months this place will be so overgrown that no one will question our story. The village was already abandoned when we arrived. The local critters will take care of the bodies, and I'll make sure my men understand that we found this place empty. You destroy the photographic plates you have of anything other than the temple, and we're good. Arkwright was fuming, but he knew the mercenary was talking sense. A scandal like this, even one in which Arkwright himself was blameless, would tarnish his reputation before he even had the time to earn one. Once it got out that his men had wiped out an entire village of indigenous inhabitants, he'd never even be considered to be invited into the Explorer Society. He'd be shunned forever. Marked as a failure. It was the only solution that guaranteed any future in the field, but he hated acknowledging that the mercenary was right. I thought I said no drinking, he snapped, by way of a parking shot. Barbara feigned an injured look. I nearly got killed today. I need something to settle my nerves. Urquhart opened his pocket watch, stared in a fume at the numbers without registering them, and snapped it closed. I want my exhibition pieces crated up and ready to go within the hour. I'll not spend a night in this charnel house. Barbara raised the broken pitcher in salute. Your good health, he said, and drained it. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of the slaughter at Stone Hill. <laughs>